Good morning. How many of you get the daily bulletin? Oh, quite a few. How many of you look Saturday in the religion section? You used to. Why do you used to? Well, I, I beg to differ. A week ago Saturday, there was an article in there by a fellow named uh, Loman. Loman, what was it? <laughs> Sam Loman. Because I read them no matter who writes them. I they've got a Baha'i that puts an article in there. They've got the, they've got the head pastor guy of the Latter-day Saints. He, he submits. They've got the mullah from the, from the uh, mosque. He submits. Sierra Vista submits. There's a lot of evangelical churches that submit. There's a Unitarian Universalist female, female minister that submits. So what you'll read in this article, which is it's weekly, one week you'll get a gospel message, the next week you'll get feel-good fluff, and then the next week you'll get a message from the pit of hell. Particularly when the university Universal, Unitarian Universalist talks about there, talks in there. No mention of God, never mind Jesus Christ, no mention of God. It's uh, all about humanity. Anyway, a week ago yesterday, there was an article in there by this Loman fella. And it was the lengthiest of the article. Usually they're in a block this big. Sam's was in a block this big. How many of you read that article a week ago Saturday? That was excellent, wasn't it? Not only did he preach the gospel, he gave point-by-point point examples of why Jesus Christ is who he said he was. He is the Son of God. And I read that with his big grin on my face because I've read so much garbage in these articles. And so I, I came last Sunday intending to tell Sam that, Sam, I really, he wasn't here last week. He's not here this week. Don't let it go to his head. But it was, it was excellent. It refuted Muslim claims against the deity of Christ. It was just an excellent article. And we as believers, hopefully we as biblical believers that trust the word of God, can discern when we read these words, truth from error. And of course the Bible exhorts us to test the spirits, right? To test them. We're to be like the Bereans, aren't we? The Bereans had two things that commended themselves. One was that they received the word with all readiness of mind. But then what did they do? They searched the scriptures whether these things were so. I like to believe that all of us that are seated here today have with the blessing of the Spirit of God and with the Word of God, the, we definitely have the ability, but do we have the desire, the discernment to discern these spirits? Because we can read something that's written by a mainstream, perhaps evangelical pastor. And yet we can still, still find error in it, can't we? And I'm not saying that every word ever, that's ever come out of the mouth of a brethren speaker or writer is absolutely true. We know from scripture that it is not. not there is no man that has all knowledge. I would, I would go back even farther and to say that the apostles themselves unless they were speaking through the Spirit or writing in the Spirit, that they too were subject to error. Am I a blasphemer? No, I don't think so. 
what they penned is 100% truth. What they spoke when they spoke in the spirit was 100% truth. But perhaps in a, in a, in a, in a gathering at uh, someone's home, perhaps they would have to admit, you know, I just don't know that. I'm going to pray about that. Or perhaps they had to admit that, you know, I've heard uh, differences of opinion on this and we can't all be right. Does that mean that there are problems with the Bible? You and I look at the Bible totally different than the rest of the world. You and I that have been raised from our youth, many of us from our youth, weaned on the Bible, having contests next door to send us to camp by, by memorizing 110 verses. We've been weaned on it. To us, it is the milk of the, you know, it is, it's, it's milk and meat to us. It is, it is part of us. But you know, the people that we walk through day by day, to them, and to some of you that have been recently saved, to, to, to them, to you, it was, it was abstract, it was different, it was, it was to you, it was the Ten Commandments. It was, uh, maybe it had supremacy over the Quran and the Bhagavad Gita and some of the other spiritual writings around the world, and it was profitable in some respects because, you know, Christ taught to love one another. But to most of the world, it is a guideline, perhaps. It is a, it is a good book and perhaps the equal of others. Perhaps not the equal of others, perhaps less in the eyes of unbelievers. To much of the world, it is a book of allegory. It is a book of metaphor. It is a book of myth. It is unreliable at best. And so I ask, trying to, I mean, to us that's just insanity to even consider those questions, but when we talk to people in the world, to them the Bible is just another way. I read an article that says, uh, well, let me tell you a couple other things. I, I had a, a couple of ladies come to my door on a Saturday mid-morning, dressed in very nice hats, very nice dresses, had a child in tow, came and knocked on our door. My wife generally goes and hides and ignores it till they go away. But they had spied me earlier because I was working on the sprinkler, so I, <laughs> I went out and said, good morning to you. I had my tools in my hand. They said, good morning. How are you? Isn't it a blessed day today? And they said, you know, we've, uh, we've, got, uh, we've got a message for you, and we'd like to share something with you. And I said, you're, you're Jehovah Witnesses, aren't you? And they said, yes, we are. I said, ma'am, ladies, I'm afraid we're never ever going to come to any type of common ground. We're never going to come to any agreement because we are just diametrically opposed on, on one issue, and that is the person of Jesus Christ, who Jesus Christ is. I said, you believe that he, that he had within him the Spirit of God. I believe that the Bible teaches that he was the Son of God, that he was co-equal with God. Well, you know, and then she says, the, as far as the translation, you know, she started going this. I said, Madam, the Lord Jesus himself in the Bible claimed his own deity. 
And I said, I'm afraid we're never going to come to common ground. And I, and I said, and what you need to do is come to grips with who the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is. And the only way to do that is through his word and the working of the Holy Spirit. Because even to these cults, that we think of so many cults that have sprung up just in the past hundred years that range from Jehovah Witness, Mormonism is about 150 years old, Seventh-day Adventism, and the list goes on and on and on. The king of Sweden in the last century, at a time, I believe he was one of the Olafs, at a time when European thought, and, and even American, is going to these new philosophers, you know, uh, Goethe and Nietzsche and, and many of the other philosophers, and the aristocracy and the intelligentsia of Europe are flocking to their teachings, this naturalistic uh, uh, viewpoint of the world, uh, God is dead philosophies, from which sprang uh, Freud and Darwin and others. And the king had been in, being influenced, claiming to be a Christian, he had been influenced by the teaching and the influence of other aristocrats that says, oh, you really must investigate the teachings of Nietzsche or, or some of the others. He called upon Count von Zinzendorf. You've heard of him? He was the head of the Moravian church, a very uh, strong Bible-believing church. He summoned him to court, and he said, I have set aside 10 hours of this day. I've set aside the entire day. I'm having doubts. I'm, I'm having conflicts. I want you to convince me of the truth of the Bible and the God of the Bible. And Count von Zinzendorf says, I don't need 10 hours. He says, I can do it in two words. He says, well, what are those words, the king said. And he said, the Jews. And we can go down lists of apologetics as to why we believe that the Bible, the word of God, is reliable, it is relevant, it has survived intact, and that it is true. They include fulfilled prophecy. They include uh, the witness of the apostles. And we will go through some of these verses. It includes the words and the works of Christ himself. But it, it includes the fact of the Jews. When you think about this people, this little tribe that sprang out of Abraham, and Abraham had many sons, didn't he? He had only one son of promise through Sarah. But then he went on and had many sons, and it lists the nations that came out of Abraham, doesn't it? Midian and Edom, and, and you know, through, through uh, Isaac come the Moabites and all these other kingdoms. And you know what? All these kingdoms have been assimilated, and, and they're no longer there, are they? are they? There is no Edom although it's still, you know, it's encompassed by the land of Jordan. There is no Midian. There is no Moab. There are, there are no more Hittites and Hivites and Amalekites and Jebusites, are there? These are gone. But this little tribe, this little tribe, though it has been hunted to extinction in attempts from the time of the Pharaoh in Egypt through the Philistines, through the Babylonians, through the Assyrians, through the Romans, up to the time of Hitler, and up to the current day when the Muslim world would love to exterminate Israel, God has not only, through dispersion and reassimilation, he's not only kept them alive, 
He has restored them to the land. But he said, von Zinzendorf's uh, commentary on it was that this is a miracle. That this little tribe, this little nation, should not only have survived, but it has never been assimilated. It has never become just another little subculture of America or of Europe or whatever. They have maintained distinct ties. They'll only really, the Orthodox ones will only marry among themselves. They will follow their own rituals. They are a, they are a miracle that they have survived to this day. And they have fulfilled all the prophecies in being restored to the land. So we, we think about this, this scripture. Our, our first verse that we're going to look at, unless you think I'm just going to ramble, is in 2 Peter, the, uh, the epistles of Peter. By the way, let me ask you a question as we're turning to Peter. Have any of you, some of you are rather, uh, rather long in the tooth. <laughs> Graybeards, you might say, and that applies to women as well. Um, you're, have any of you met an apostle? Have any of you, any of you older ones, have you ever met Peter, James, or John? Mm, junior high, high school? No. <laughs> That's just a joke. Of course not. The fact of the matter is, you and I, Lauren, you, you give me one of these if I'm going too far, all right? Or one of these, okay? <laughs> the fact of the matter is, you and I have never had the privilege of meeting Jesus of Nazareth, have we? We have never been on a hillside as he expounded the words of the kingdom, have we? We've never heard Peter, James, John, Paul. We've never heard them speak as well, have we? We've never seen their face. We've never seen their great-grandchildren as well. The only way, you know, to us who have been raised in the word of God, to us it is natural that we read the word of God and we assume it is true. But you young people... You, those of you going into college or who are in college or college is coming. I took philosophy classes when I was in college. I took anthropology class. I took all the garbage that they're going to throw at you. And you're going to find some charismatic professors. And I know Christians that have gone into college as firm believers and have left college a waste forsaken their faith, forsaken their church, for, forsaken other believers because of this, the, the, the sweet, enticing words of men. So if it's difficult for a Christian to maintain, to maintain a faith in, in the Bible and in the words of their Savior, how much more difficult for an unbeliever to make it through there without being polluted by this? In 2 Peter chapter 2, we read... <clears throat> beginning with verse 1, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in the damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them, and bringing upon themselves that bought them, and bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Verse 4, for if God spared not, I'm sorry, skip to verse 15, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozer, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumbass, speaking with man's voice, forbade the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. 
For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh. Through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. Verse 21, for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. And then in the next chapter, verse 1, it says, This second epistle, beloved, I, I now write to you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts. And we'll stop there. Peter devoted two chapters here to warning the believers, to warning the church, not only in the last days, but even in those days, that how a person, a believer without a foundation, and that's really the the purpose of my message today, is the foundation, how that the Holy Scripture, the Bible itself, must be the foundation. You know, I asked you, have you met Peter, James, and John? Have you met the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh? No, we haven't. How can we be sure unless we stand upon a, upon a, a foundation that is based on the Holy Word? What do we have? We have no eyewitness accounts outside of this. We have no recorded words outside of this. And outside of the Holy Spirit, we have nothing else. The Holy Spirit guides us. You know, just the other week, Magby was preaching, how, how shall they believe unless they hear? And how shall they hear? I'm sorry, <laughs> unless they preach. And how shall they, how does it go? Unless they've heard. And hear, uh, yeah, you know, you know what I'm saying. So what do we rely on? The Holy Spirit leads us to Christ. We've heard stories of unbelieving young men and women that have sought this way and that way, the things of the world, the things of flesh, philosophies, uh, different cults, different things. And, you know, like the scripture said here, uh, these are wells without water. They've tried it all, and then they've cried out, God, if you're true, reveal to me your truth. And that's when the Holy Spirit leads them into righteousness. It leads them to the Word of God. So when we look at, when we look at the Word of God, you know, we can make multiple studies on the authenticity of Scripture, how it is corroborated by, uh, by history, secular history, the writings of Josephus and of Livy and of of uh, other, other of the great uh, Roman and Greek writers. These acts are corroborated. It's corroborated through archaeology. It's corroborated through geology. It's corroborated through human DNA. You know, human DNA takes us back to the genetic Eve, who they think was some proto-monkey out of East Africa. But the fact of the matter is, each of us here every color, every shape, every size, can trace through DNA our lineage back to one woman. Not one man, but to one woman. 
And who would that be? Don't say Eve. Who would that be? Noah's wife. Yeah, right? Because Noah gave birth to those three boys, and even though they had their own individual wives, Noah's wife. We all share her DNA. And of course, some of Eve's comes as well. But we can trace it to that one woman, Noah's wife. DNA corroborates this. Of course, science is going to look at it through the eyes of naturalism. They're going to say that genetic DNA, of course, predisposes us to that when all these branches were coming off at different times, they ape. Well, that was the one that the human race came from. And of course, you're going to do that if your religion is science. And I say religion because science so-called, particularly the sciences that relate to paleontology, archaeology, etc., are a religion. You and I will look at the same evidence and we will see the finger of God on everything. His fingerprint is on everything. We see in the DNA, we see in geology the evidence of the great flood. The strata that are laid down everywhere. They say, well, they were laid down little by little over millions of years. We say that's ridiculous because erosion would have erased all that evidence if it were done slowly. If it's laid down quickly, boom, that's why you have thousands of feet of sediment. Yes, I, I assume there are some here in this audience that may not agree with me in everything on the scripture, how to take literally the flood and creation, a literal six-day creation. Many of you may disagree. But if you look at the evidence through the eyes of science, you'll, you'll say this, we're, we're, we're following a fable, a myth. If you look at the evidence through the eyes of faith, you see that these things all can fall into place. We just need to we need to ask God for guidance, and number one, we need to trust him. So if we think of the, the various uh, sciences that will corroborate, each of them could fill a message on how they can cor corroborate uh, the scripture. I like to think of God himself and the attributes of God. Because if we are to lay claim on a Bible, on a book, that gives us the history not the complete running history of humankind, but it gives the history of God's dealing with man from creation through the age of conscience, human government, the law. How he chose one insignificant little people, and again, chosen not because they were the greatest, but because they were the least of all the people, and used them to be the source of his plan of salvation through their seed. We look at that, and if, we, and if we look at that, and we are to believe it in any way, shape, or form, we have to have an understanding of, of who God is and what his attributes are. When I think of God, I think of, uh, you can think of the, all the omni words, right? Omni, omnipotent, omnipotent, all-powerful. And I think you've got to start with that. Anyone who's done a study of astronomy, who's even looked at a National Geographic and seen those pictures from the Hubble telescope that show one spot in space that is inhabited by hundreds of galaxies, you've got to think of how great God must be. His hand of creation, he who created the heavens as an afterthought almost is described, and the heavens also is how he described his creation of it. And he created the heavens also as an afterthought. 
We think of the omnipotence of God. We think of another omni word, the omniscience of God. His all-knowing nature, don't we? That one brings fear to us, doesn't it? Because an omniscient God who knows everything and sees everything and is all-powerful sees what I do, hears what I say, knows what I think. And that should bring some fear to our heart, shouldn't it? So he is omniscient. We read also that he is omnipresent. And to me, that is a great joy to know that he is omnipresent. Again, it brings a little fear because he's right here. He's right here with me. And he's here and he's with me when I'm alone. Or he's with me when I'm at work. Or he's with me where, when I'm where I shouldn't be. He is omnipresent. And the beauty of when I think of God's omnipresence, I think of his eternal omnipresence. That he can be in every place at every time throughout all time. And when I think about my meeting him in the glory in heaven, it's not that his omnipresence only takes part in this physical plane that we inhabit, but his omnipresence is eternal. And it is atemporal. It is without a time. So that I know that when I'm in heaven and I see him, I'm not waiting in a line of a billion souls. I'm not in a crowd of a billion far, far, and I have, I have to use binoculars to see him. We, we have to rely on a sound system to project his voice to us. It's not like that. Because he is omnipresent, I can be on his bosom. At the same time, you're on his bosom. Isn't that, the, isn't that beautiful? We're not in a line, and we have to share our time with everyone else. He can have each of us on his bosom simultaneously. He can look into each of our eyes simultaneously. Is he looking into your heart at this moment? You know he is. Is his Holy Spirit indwelling you? You know it is. So you know that in, in eternity future, we will, we will hold his hand. Each of us, not in a line. And yet at the same time, we can join in the vast chorus and sing his praises. It's an amazing thought. We think of the other attributes of God. We think of divine love. Where do, we, where do we learn of his divine love? We learn of it in the Holy Scriptures. We think of his, when we think of his omnipotence, his power, the power of God that created this universe in a thought. We know that he has the power to create, don't we? We know that even now, though this universe is ravaged by sin, he has the power to sustain it. If you, if you do any studies in the realm of physics or astrophysics, the way things are held together is impossible. The forces that, hold an, that, that, that an atom produces, how they can stay in orbit without flying apart, it's, it's inconceivable. It is the hand of God that keeps everything in operation. Every, he sustains everything. He has the power to protect his creation, his loved ones, those that he knows that are far from him, but someday will come to him. He has the power to protect. He has the power to preserve. And he has the power to demonstrate his love. How does this apply to the scripture? If we believe that an omnipotent God 
can sustain everything from an atom to a galaxy in an order that is inconceivable. The complexity of the nervous system of the human body, of the blood system, I've done some reading on it, it's just, it's head shaking. I don't know how there can possibly be an atheistic doctor in the world when you study the human body. The smallest of, the smallest of things are incredibly complex. I've read articles that I just shake my head. So how can anyone say there is no God when you have studied this? Inconceivable. This God that has preserved his creation through the years, years, is he not powerful enough to preserve, protect, and sustain his written word, his holy word? In other words, the claim against the authenticity of Scripture, the reliability of Scripture, is that it was penned by umpteen different authors over umpteen millennia. It's been recopied hundreds and thousands of times. It's had input and opinions inserted from all these different sources. The copyist cannot be relied upon. All these questions are worthy of considering. Because we rely so much on the scribe, on the copyist, on referring to today's manuscripts with the <clears throat> farthest manuscripts we can find. Copies of the Torah from 1800, 2200 years ago, Dead Sea Scrolls, other uh, ancient manuscripts. And the interesting thing is that they, they're virtual perfect copies. And if we look through the scripture and we see a problem we have the ability today to go to the original languages, don't we? If we think that that just didn't make sense, we can go to a lexicon, we can look up the original languages, we can, we can see how literal that translation was, and we can, we can feel uh, confident in it. One thing I've always said to people that doubt the scriptures and doubt the veracity of scripture is that it is such a shame that God is in heaven right now shaking his head and regretting the poor, the poor God of heaven and the regrets he has at how he didn't make things more clear. You know, I should have made that more clear. I should have used a different verb there. I should have perhaps expounded on that a little farther or perhaps omitted that. And so we've got a God in heaven that saw into the future being omniscient, omnipresent, and I would say omnitemporal, and now he inhabits heaven with a heart of regret. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that for a moment? That God regrets that he didn't make things clearer in his word and in his scripture? Do you think he's in there saying, oh, it's a shame that those Babylonians did a, did a bad copy on the law, and now it's polluted it for all eternity? That the God that preserves and maintains the universe cannot preserve his written word is insanity. People say, well, your argument is circular reasoning. You're saying that the scripture is true because it says it's true. And that's a valid point. And that's a valid point. We who believe the scripture are going to look in it to find validation, to find verification that it is real. But as I said before, we also have the other tools, don't we? We have history. We have, you know, King David was considered a myth among many, many historians until about 30 years ago, 
when finally a, a, a road sign or something was dug up that was, you know, 2,800 years old that said, uh, David, king of, king of Israel, da, da, da. They could not find anything in history that had the word David on it. They could find, uh, they could find evidence for a lot of the other kings by name, you know, Jehoshaphat and Josiah. They could find evidence for that. They could never find evidence for David. So they believe that, well, this is embellishment. You know, it probably went from Saul to Jonathan, and this became a myth that David, the mighty, the boy warrior who slew, that, that he went on to do this. He went on to, that that was a myth and a fable. Well, it's, it's being... It's being verified, and more and more things are being verified day by day. His, history, archaeology bears this out. The earliest texts bear this out, but that is not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to <clears throat> you young people, if you're in doubt, do the research. It is so easy now online to find evidence. Google something like uh, uh, historical uh, or archaeological discoveries that validate the Bible, and well, you'll, it'll bring these up. It is so easy for you to, in the old days, we'd have to go to a, we'd have to go to a library. I hate libraries. We'd have to go to a library, preferably one at a, like a seminary, and you'd have to go through the card catalog, and now you type in six, eight words, and you, you've got the world at your fingertips. You've got to be careful where, what you're doing there, but it's amazing. You know, as, as I was preparing for this, uh, uh, the resources are readily available at your fingertips. You, you other gentlemen that have prepared messages, you know how readily available resources are. It's almost like cheating. But it's, uh, it's fantastic. Do, do your homework. Investigate. Look into it. And then you arrive at a day when you're going to say, I will believe or I won't believe. And, you know, it's very sad that recently we've heard of even some among us that deny the authority of Scripture, the veracity of Scripture, the reliability of Scripture, because it is, it is foundational. It is utterly foundational. <clears throat> if I consider one, one, verse or one passage from the Old Testament is unreliable, there is a crack in that foundation. If I look at entire books as being unreliable or metaphorical or allegorical, I have taken a chunk out of that foundation. And once I've gone that far, then I'm going to look at every other verse and every other passage in, in Scripture with a critical eye, with a cynical eye. And I will have to insert something else in its place, won't I? And so I will insert into its place my own opinions. I will insert into the place of faith and trust in the word of God another man's opinions. Proverbs 28, 26 says, He who trusts in himself, in his own heart, he who trusts in his own heart is what? Is a fool. When I get to the point where I have to examine the Word of God and doubt it and put my reliance on my own wisdom and the thoughts of my heart, not only am I destined to fail, but I am a fool. 
I am a fool to think that the wisdom of my heart can take the place of the truth of Scripture. That is insanity. And yet the church is full of that today. I was reading an article. There was a lot of hubbub about this one preacher. I won't mention his name. He's from mainstream evangelical church. And he said, it's not important. He says, I'll tell you what I believe, he said. I believe that the New Testament is inspired and reliable. The Old Testament, I don't know. But that's not important, he said. Well, why do we bother keeping it? Why do we bother keeping it? Why did God give it to Moses? Does this young man that wrote this article know better than Moses when he was on the mount and he saw God face to face? When God gave him the law, when God spoke to Moses and he recorded it, does this man think that his wisdom supersedes what, what Moses recorded in the books of the law, every word of which points to the Lord Jesus Christ? If I doubt those books, then the prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, they crumble. Those, those beautiful types in the tabernacle, those beautiful types in the sacrifices that point to the Lord Jesus, those stories, Abraham and Isaac, were these concocted after the fact? These are, the word of God is foundational. And if we insert I'll tell you what, you know, another thing you're going to find if you go on the internet, you can find sermons, you can find messages from, from good speakers from Calvary chapels and other good evangelical churches. You can find things that are on the periphery, and they may sound pretty good. I was listening to, we went fishing two weeks ago up to Bishop, and on the way home, Sunday mid-morning, I turn on the, whatever the local, you know, Eastern Sierra Christian station is, and I, I hear this guy start speaking, and we listen to him for, what, a minute? Andrew, about a minute or so, we found, what? We went, what? <laughs> and he was, we're going to have a baptism today, he says, and we're going to, through that baptism, we're going to be in agreement with the doctrine of this and that, and then we find out it's Seventh-day Adventists. That you're going to be baptized into this group and you're going to affirm that the Sabbath is holy. You're going to affirm that the law is still in place. <laughs> so out of curiosity, I did not turn it off. I continued to, to listen. This guy had a beautiful, and after him there was an Australian guy with a beautiful voice. I can see how people are swayed by these people, you know. They, they've got voices like honey. They've got, oh man, they've got their, their outline down to a, to a T. Their words are just so persuasive. I, I asked Andrew, I said, Seventh-day Adventism may be the way to go, huh? <laughs> jokingly. But, <laughs> jokingly. But, this, <laughs> you know, the, the, the world is filled with honey-tongued speakers. And we are filled with itching ears, aren't we? <clears throat> and unless you are resting on a foundation that is firm, you can be jarred by the slightest tremor. By the slightest breeze, you can be jarred. By these cunningly devised fable that we read about in Second Peter, you can be swayed. Brothers and sisters, if you do not have absolute faith in the word of God, I would ask you to pray 
that the Holy Spirit would guide you one way or the other. That you would come to the understanding that the omnipotent God of heaven has protected and preserved his word through the centuries, through the millennia. That he has shown us his son, the Lord Jesus, through this. This to him is not unimportant. To some preachers, it's unimportant. To, the, to God of heaven, this is not unimportant. This is the love letter that he sent us regarding his son. It is important. It is true. It is foundational. You know, most of us know by heart 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, all scripture is given by God and it is profitable for what? It's profitable, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You know, that verse starts out by saying all Scripture. All Scripture. And then it goes on to say is given by inspiration. Inspiration. It is the very breath of God through the penman, through the apostle, through the prophet. It is very God-breathed. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Not inspiration of a spirit, but inspiration of the God of heaven. And it goes on to say what it is good for, and its purpose is that the man of God, brothers and sisters, do you want to be a man of God, a man or a woman of God? It's going to be based on the foundation that the word of God, the living word of God, is true. It is right. It is reliable. It is protected and preserved by the very God who created the universe. Because he desires that we know him. He desires that we are introduced to his son. It is of the, it is of the highest importance not that we, through our wisdom, becoming fools, pick and choose what to believe and what not to believe. I would rather you abandon all faith than to go to the point where you can say, well, I believe John, but I don't believe Ezekiel. Ask God to bless us. The other thing in closing is that the word of God, you know, the Muslim has the Quran. And they revere that book highly. I had Muslim friends in college. And I said, oh, there's a Quran. And I reached for it. No, no, no. You can't touch it until you've washed your hands. They have a reverence for their untrue, ridiculous scriptures. They have a reverence. They have a piety in regards to it. They will fight you to the death if you, if you, if you defile their, their Koran. Do we have a love like that of our book? We know that this is paper and leather or cardboard or whatever you may have. But in this book is the very person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is the working of the Holy Spirit. There is the love of God in this book. And we cannot make light of it. We cannot neglect it. We cannot doubt it. It is the living word of God. And our Lord Jesus Christ 
is the Word, isn't he? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he is manifest to us through his Spirit and through his Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have loved us so much that you have given us your Word. Oh, Father, we think of countries where owning the Word of God is a crime, and yet, Father, we handle it with cavalier hands. Father, we pray that you would renew in our hearts a great love for thy word, a great reverence for it. Father, remind us that it is reliable, that it is relevant, and that it is preserved by thy power. So, Father, we ask thy blessing upon this meeting that you would give your word and your son the premacy in it. And, Father, work in all of our hearts that we may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So, Father, we ask thy blessing upon this time, and in his name, amen.